I think that the kids would more appreciate that. That they see somebody concerned about what they're doing and how to do it. And we walk away and turn our head, act like we don't see. That's wrong. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Today on the podcast, we have Gordon Marino. Gordon is a professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College. He is the author of several books, most recently, The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. Gordon is also a longtime boxing coach, as well as an award-winning boxing writer. He's written for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and many others. Hi, Gordon. Hey, how's it going? So this is our second shot trying to do this uh, interview. Yeah, that's right. Last time I told you guys that it was one of the best interviews I ever had, and you called me back and said, so you better come through again, man. Come on. (laughs) We're just meatheads, you know? Oh, man. You can't. This is still amateur hour. We're we're figuring this stuff out. That's good. Okay, good. Two strikes and you're out. Let's go, Okay, baby. okay. <laughs> so tell us about your new book. Okay, yeah. So uh, after 35 years of walking with Kierkegaard and existentialists, I d- decided to try and uh, see you know, what wisdom I could distill from these thinkers. And uh, so it was an attempt to really just uh, get at some practical wisdom about, about life from Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and others. But it's intermingled with stories, so I think that uh, it's really important that if you're going to have, uh, if you have a kind of a theory or a point of view you want to express, it's really useful to have some examples. And so I try to provide a lot of real life examples, most of which are embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so, what started your interest in philosophy? Uh, I grew up in a house that was a lot, a lot of fights and a lot of trouble. And uh, it certainly made you th- made me think a lot about you know who's right, who's wrong, the truth, and uh, things like that. So it, uh, it was a difficult uh, difficult upbringing in that sense. Complicated. Both my brother and sister became therapists. <laughs> was there like a teacher at school who kind of introduced you to philosophy books in the first place, though, during this time? Or you no, know, when I was at a, I went to a Bowling Green State University to play football, and I, I encountered a, a philosophy professor there who was uh, just tremendous. His name was uh, Alfred Serge Kapler. He was only maybe 26, and I was like 19, and he just finished his PhD. And um, he pulled me out of class one day and said, "You have some, you have some ability at this, and I see you have a passion, and uh, you need to go to a place where you can get uh, Division One training intellectually." So I transferred to Columbia. Uh, so it was a very a great teacher because he really went out of his way, went over to check on my records and things like that, and it was a real model for uh, uh, for a teacher, like you know, going that extra mile with somebody. And uh, so. I've certainly tried to carry his tradition on. Yeah, that's the thing uh, that I really liked about your book. It was both memoir and kind of a, a introduction and a guide on existential philosophy. But you used yourself 
as kind of a way to piggyback these ideas that might seem very abstract. So you connected it to yourself. So I think especially people who are into combat sports, but also like maybe in particular young men who who dealt with a lot of, uh, you know, anger issues or troubled past. I think it made it really accessible. Insecurities, too. Right. Yeah. Anger and insecurities go together a lot. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of boxing in there. You basically wrote a philosophy book like for regular people. Because we kind of see philosophy, you know, as something uh, just for those academics in ivory towers. Yeah. How is philosophy, in particular existentialism, like useful for regular people? How, how, how could they apply some of these ideas or why would it even be worth applying? Well, first, first off, philosophy is this love of wisdom. It's not supposed to, it's not, it's not a love of knowledge so, uh, about how to live, you know, and so it should apply to everybody. So it's, it shouldn't be an elitist academic type of thing. It's a... Uh, uh, it's it's really a, a, anybody who's educated and thoughtful and honest with themselves. It can be a very, very useful. Um, so uh, I try to bring it out of the ivory uh, ivory tower a little bit, and uh, I think there's more of that lately. To some extent, with a since our world's become more secularized, there's more and more people turn to people don't want to give up that something deeper in life, and so they turn to philosophers, which I have issues with too. But <laughs> but um, so uh, yeah, uh, so. Some of the insights from existentialism are one, uh, that I talk about are the importance of being able to sit with negative emotions like anxiety and depression, uh, uh, not not to medicalize anxiety. Anxiety, for example, is this this uh, uh, it's an anxiety that, you, that, according to Kierkegaard, you understand that you're free. It's a sign of true spirit, you know. And um, so they address some of the, uh, the uh, it seems to me that in order to be a good person, you need to be able to deal with uh, inner obstacles. It's easy to be really nice, and it should be easy to be nice when things are going really well. But when you're having a rough time, can you be kind? Can you reach out? And uh, I, I found the uh, existentialists address that issue, and that's very helpful. So is that what you mean by inauthentic age and living in such an age? And what does it mean to be authentic? Well, I give two models there, and, and, and I have to uh, confess that it was – the uh, publisher, Harper, that wanted me to talk about authenticity, I, I wasn't really going to talk about it very much, but there's two models there. There's one notion that you were born with a certain, uh, that you're born to become a certain kind of self. Uh, say from a uh, Kierkegaardian point of view, who was a Christian, to, be, uh, uh, to be, be faithful to God, to trust in God, right? And no matter what else you do in life, that's, that's your real self. And if you don't realize that, you haven't become yourself. On the other hand, you have someone like Nietzsche and uh, many people today who believe that to become a self is a creative act. It's like an artistic production. You know, it's a, you create yourself. Uh, uh, so there's two different models of the self there. And uh, I, I think modernity, we're le certainly leaning towards the one where we think of the self as a work of art. Uh, but uh, I'm probably more on the Kierkegaardian side. So if that's something that your publishers wanted you to add to the title. Yeah, don't tell them I said that, though. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that out. I'm sure they don't listen to this podcast anyway. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> If that was something that uh, was later kind of uh, a way to mold uh, your your story, what was the original idea for your book? Uh, well, they just wanted they just wanted a chapter on authenticity, oh, okay, okay, and, okay. and that was that was fine with me because it's a very it's a it's a, a important motif with existentialists, and uh, so I had no no gripes about it. But it wasn't something I came up with originally. Yeah, and so we do live in this age where this this constant self presentation, uh, social media, things like that, and uh, I think little concern about who we really are. And that's why I really push, I've mentioned this before to you, I think I've mentioned in the book that I really push my students to think about not just what they want to do or what how they want to seem in life, but uh, what kind of people they want to be. 
when they're 20 years old, think about, uh, you know, what kind of human being do I want? What's my aim as a human being? Because you can't, you know, you really can't control a lot of issues around vocation and, you know, talents to some extent, a lottery, all kinds of things. But we should have some control over what kind of person we want to be. So, and I don't think we give enough thought to that. So I would connect that with authenticity. What kind of human being do you want to be? I think our first go around also, you connected authenticity to morality, like where you were explaining how if you see something and you felt like you should have acted, but you didn't, yeah, that could be a form of inauthenticity. Could you speak to that more? I don't know that that's a, a form of inauthenticity, but it's okay. certainly a sense of um, a failure. And I, I do talk to my students a lot. And my feeling is that uh, moral issues just jump out of the closet sometimes. You could be walking down the street seeing somebody get mugged. You're going to jump in. Or somebody can ask you, some higher up can ask you a question, whereas, and if you tell the truth, your, uh, your job might be in jeopardy. Uh, so uh, when, I, when I teach ethics, I try to prepare students for the fact that I mean, uh, they, you usually don't get a warning sign when uh, ethical crossroads are coming in and what it feels like when you fail at those, you know, when you, when you don't do the right thing. And the, the point I try to make in the book a lot is it comes from Kierkegaard that uh, one of the greatest impediments to leading a righteous life, to being a good person, kind person, is um, self-deception. We talk ourselves out of the hard truths, you know, and I spent a lot of time on that in there. So I, I think that's one of his great insights that, you know, there's our tendency to talk ourselves out of uh, the right thing to do when, when, when it's going to involve a sacrifice. Because moral dilemmas can kind of come out of nowhere, is that kind of the power of uh, especially Kierkegaardian existential philosophy where you kind of examine your own deceptions and kind of think these out first so you're not so taken by surprise, you already kind of know how you should act in these situations? I think it's a good idea, don't you, to, to, to know how you'd like to act, how you want to act. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the question. How do you want, you know, how do you want to act? How important is it to to have a uh, a clear conscience and everything? So it's it's good to have an idea of what you think you, you know, sometimes we, we uh, think of hypothetical moral examples. You say, well, I don't know that I could do that. Well, that's not the question. The question is, what would you like to be able to do? You know, and uh, yeah. So and uh, many, many people, I think people come back from wars who are, who've been through the uh, crucible, uh, suffer from feeling like they've done the wrong thing. You know, and how paralyzing guilt can be in a society where there's no longer any forgiveness, except this idea of self forgiveness, which I take to be pretty phony. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't think I can't. I can't forgive myself for doing some harm to you. You need to forgive me, right? I can. I cannot torture myself about it. I can repent and say, "Man, I'm going to try to be better in the future," but I can't forgive myself. Ah. Third party forgiveness seems to me to be just the therapeutic idea. You know, it's not. It's not possible. But it doesn't mean I. Sh- we do something wrong or we don't do the right thing out of fear or whatever. Uh, we should shake our head, be sorrowful, and uh, um, commit ourselves to doing better in the future. But I don't think we can forgive ourselves for it. That's we can just that's a misnomer. It seems like the same line of logic where some people, like our president, will tell you that he's smart. And regular people say that too. And I'm like, wait, isn't that for me to decide if you're smart or not? <laughs> isn't that, the, <laughs> right, isn't right. that supposed to be like the third person observation, not you telling yourself that? That's right. Yeah, But don't get me going on that topic, please. <laughs> <laughs> Just follow my Twitter feed. <laughs> I'm always tweeting back at our friend there. <laughs> Flat top, Dennis the Menace, whatever. <laughs> Both you and Sam talked about moral dilemmas. But oftentimes what I'm discovering is that especially the youth and sometimes adults don't seem to have fully fleshed out morals to begin with. So if that's the case, how is it that 
they should go about trying to determine what their morals are, how to achieve it, and if it's too late to even develop them. Well, I don't know. It's not like you have to have a full-fledged moral theory in your in your your head, you know. Um, one of the hypotheticals I posed in my class the other day was: uh, suppose you're a med school student and uh, you um, you you've got been accepted to med school with a scholarship and everything, but you, you know, it's final exam time. You're 21. You get drunk. You sleep through the exam, and uh, uh, you need to pass the you need to pass the course in order to go to go into med school and um, the professors are kind of a soft touch. Do you lie to the professor and tell him you slept through it, or do you, uh, or or do you tell him this is what happened and uh, take the consequences? So uh, <laughs> a, a, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of students feel well. In that case, you should probably lie. It's no big deal. <laughs> and I try to make the case that when you tell a lie, you become a liar. It becomes easier the next time. Okay. You know because uh, is your is your code going to be? I'll tell the truth unless there's a, I, I believe there's serious consequences, you know. So I don't, I don't think it's um I don't think it's so much a moral. Uh, you know, we have a list of moral codes, like commandments. We have, well, there may be some, but uh, uh, just a, a kind of vision of what kind of person I want to be. I noticed that more in the other world that you occupy, in the world of uh, boxing and especially like actually sports too. In general, I see this a lot with like I wrestled in high school. Yeah. And the coach oftentimes would just sit us at the end of uh, our practice where we wouldn't even talk about wrestling. He would talk about your character. He, he did that a lot. And I know they do that in football and other sports and boxing as well. Not so much in football anymore. No. I coach football. <laughs> Seriously, no. I, 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 it used to be they talk, we'd talk about courage and all these things. And, and coaches do preach a lot. But uh, it's more like on technique now and moving people around. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it is still coaching, but it's like a trainer. Yeah, but you know, you know, it was really sports are born in the schools to build moral character, to build virtues like courage and things like that, and that's how it was connected up with public education. But yeah, it's a good, it's good. Uh, I think it's a great place to talk to them. There's also a lot of trust between. Uh, uh, oh, there's a, there's a strong bond between coaches and, uh, and 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 players all the time. So, yeah, I think it's it's a good venue for that. But in boxing, we always say it doesn't. You know, there's always this kind of builds character, and I and I've argued that a lot, but it also but most people say it reveals character. I think it does a little bit of both. You know, it can mold your character. You know, and I, I like to to argue that uh, uh, in order to do the right thing, you need to be able to take a hit. In order to be able to take a hit, we need to have the courage. And uh, boxing gives us some practice at that, at, at working with fear, at working with fear. And we don't get a lot of practice with fear. How to handle it? That's why it was brought up. The um, it was legalized after World War One, I, I believe, but and. Pushed by the military because they wanted people after World War One. They wanted people who'd experienced uh, something like a warlike experience, and so that's where they they uh, brought boxing into the academies and teaching boxing and uh, legalized boxing. But yeah, so connection between sports and character. Yep. At school, because uh, you teach both boxing and you teach, you know, as a professor, you teach classes. Do people call you coach or do they call you professor? Or it depends on what you're teaching. <laughs> I also uh, coached football at St. Olaf for many years. And uh, so they do call me coach, but I, I have to say it's it's a little rough because I get a, a, I get a lot of a number of football players in my class and some of the other people feel like, you know, I have a different relationship with them than other people. So it's a little <laughs> tricky, but it's good. No, it's really good because you get to, uh, it used to be uh, coaches in, in colleges uh, came out the faculty and, uh, you get to know people in a way that's that's quite extraordinary. For example, a lot of the football players I have, I wouldn't 
get a sense of the landscape of their minds if I hadn't been with them on both the playing field and in class. And it's really a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing to really connect with them on different different uh, different aspects of life. And I think it's really good for professors to do, whether it be football, habitat, or whatever, you know, just to connect in different levels, places. I'll bet there's only a handful of people who are actually professor coaches. Today, that's right. No, it's become so specialized today. Oh, was it more common in the past? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like in the 40s and 50s, uh, there would be bit more common and coaches would coach two and three sports oh yeah but now it's you know if you're a football coach at division three you coach that all year and uh, recruit and all that stuff so it's you know, athletics is much more specialized are you still coaching the football team or have you stepped back from that role um, i've been thinking about it the next couple of days man <laughs> yeah yeah my hands are pretty banged up from boxing and all that stuff so i got i got some pretty serious injuries Last time we talked to you, your knee was all messed up, too. Me, me too, from football, throwing the football. I'm a, I'm a maniac out there. I really am a maniac. <laughs> I'm pretty serious about technique in both boxing and football, so I'm pretty crazy. Yeah, I always feel like in those in sports, it's a, uh, people want to learn new things, you know? And if you're not, you know, so I find technique really important. Otherwise, it's just you just keep making the same muscle memory. You don't get better. You know, so I think it's really important to, to teach new stuff in, in sports. What do you think is tougher on the body, football or boxing? Well, oh, boxing, man. It's not even a comparison. Well, really? Not the, overall, not, not, the, not the overall body. Yeah, you're right. That, yeah, in terms of orthopedic stuff, Yeah, uh, uh, certainly football. But now when I went from playing football to boxing, football seemed like badminton to me. It just <laughs> did, man. Well, I, I was in New York. and Jim's in New York and uh, some very good fighters there. So it was like, holy crap, you know. And especially with the uh, boxing – uh, there's just a lot of sparring, right? Yeah. Now it doesn't seem like you do as much amateur, but in the past you had to do a lot of sparring rounds and a lot of amateurs before you went pro. Oh yeah, no. Well, there's always been people that that didn't have extensive amateur backgrounds that oh, okay. go, go pro. That's always been the case. But in order to be a successful boxer, you got to spar all the time. Like when I'm training a pro fighter, I make sure we get at least sixty rounds of good sparring in before a fight. So, uh, and that's a lot of shaking of the brain, man. That's a lot of it's it's it, it's, it take, can take its toll. I get I'm really you know, uh, you know like uh, someone like uh, I'm concerned there hasn't been enough talk about Adonis Stevenson. I mean he had he went to a coma. Boxing world is kind of like doesn't say anything about him right now. And you you know about him, light heavyweight champion who yes. uh, went to the coma and uh, uh, he's 41. I don't think people should be fighting in their 40s like that. You know. Did he recently wake up? They they don't there's hardly anybody says anything about him. He woke up, so did Mago. What's his name uh, from a few years back? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but he's paralyzed his whole life. You know. I mean, oh wow. Of, yeah, yeah. Won a huge lawsuit against the New York State Athletic Commission, and but uh, just uh, terrible. Uh, and uh, so it's it's dangerous. And I think the the uh, older people. I, I don't think people should be fighting into their forties. The idea that uh, I just I always get unboxing instead of existentialism. <laughs> your your publishers aren't listening anyway it's okay <laughs> no man but uh I, I from what i understand the brain shrinks as you get older and there's more um so there's more likelihood that it'll slap against the skull when you get hit you know uh so like up in the 50s and things like that you, you your brain shrinks some and there's more space in there for it to hit against the skull but that's that's what Kierkegaard said <laughs> Actually, that leads me to a question that one of our listeners wanted us to ask you. Uh-huh. His question was, he feels com- uh, sometimes conflicted where 
he's watching boxing or and he watches every combat sport. So but when he watches them, he always wants to see a knockout. But at the same time, like the story you just gave, he also feels very conflicted and guilty. Like, wait, I want to see a knockout, but I don't want to see anybody get hurt. Right. Is there like a philosophical way to think about this? Like, because I, I feel conflicted too sometimes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a really good point. Good question. Uh, and that's true with uh, with people going into combat sports. They're, they're on the one hand worried about whether or not they, they can fight. And they're also worried about whether or not they have it in them to hurt somebody, to hit somebody, you know. So, yeah, it's part of human nature. And uh, I, I think both and, and more so with some people than others to, to – uh, to enjoy violence, the beauty of violence, and to that's certainly an avenue for uh, uh, anger, but also to feel ambivalent about it. So, I think that's pretty typical. Well, at least he feels ambivalent. There's a lot of people who don't who don't feel ambivalent. <laughs> they just want to see blood. It's pretty. Uh, but uh, that that does speak to the fact that we're angry. We're there's a lot of anger. Just watch the movies, man. If, uh, I mean, look at the stuff going on in the movies, TV series, and you know, uh, throat slittings. Uh, I mean, like you can't yeah. get through a series. You can't get through a, a True Detective, all these bizarre, you know, killings and stuff. If, if we didn't dig it at some level, I don't think they'd be people been watching them so so much. So uh, there's there's something to be there's an attraction to it. People have a hard time admitting it. So the serial killer, you have things like remember Dexter, like the serial killer yeah. who killed serial killers. You gotta you gotta have the excuse for it. You know, it's gotta be you know the sensitive tough guy who uh, doesn't want to hurt people, but you know. But he has to in order to save someone. So it's always something to legitimize it. But there must be something there. Didn't you tell us a story last time about Manny Pacquiao where you asked him kind of a similar question about his destructive power with his fists and how he feels about it? Like, could you go into that again? Yeah, that was really sweet. Yeah. So I asked Manny uh, that being a devout Christian, who was at the, at the time was quite a knockout artist, how he felt about, uh, you know, uh, hurting people and uh uh, he, and it, uh, it was over the phone and he said uh, he didn't say anything for a second or two and I'm like oh man I, <laughs> I screwed this interview up you know and I said I'm sorry if I offended you he goes no it's a really good question he's just I think what we're doing is wrong he was talking about Tim Bradley at the time I think what we're doing is wrong that, but that God will forgive us for uh, because we have a calling so it's kind of contradictory idea but that God will forgive us because we have a calling which usually comes from God but he, he did, and uh, I also talked to him other fight, uh, who's the guy? Another fighter, another guy who fought him and um, said he was still as fast, but that he doesn't have the killer. He's always backing off. He doesn't want to hurt people. Yeah, you know, I get, always get that sense, you know. And that's been that's been an issue for him of late. Like Margarito, he broke his eye socket and didn't want to. You know, was really, you know. So uh, he's got a he's got a lot of tenderness in his heart too. You know. Oh yeah, but Margarito's a cheater, so I don't know about <laughs> I know, that. I know, I know, I agree. That was what he did was horrible. But but that but man, man uh, Manny's reluctance to really finish people off and stuff, you know. Except with Marquez that time, he was real when he got. No, you, you guys are you guys are tricksters, man. <laughs> they get me talking. Oh, how was that? Let's talk about Kierkegaard for like two seconds, and you get me off of the boxing thing. <laughs> no, it just seems like Kierkegaard always leads to boxing. I don't know how Not other people me. talk about Kierkegaard. <laughs> Not with me, I have plenty of discussions with people about Kierkegaard. And boxing never comes up. <laughs> Actually, going back to your book. Um, some of the most like emotionally, uh, you know, I don't know, riveting or like interesting parts in the book is like talking about your own um, despair that you face throughout your life. And that goes back to like, you know, human suffering as form of entertainment. It's like, oh, he's suffering. That's kind of entertaining, you know, reading it. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about all the, the violent shows we watch. But um, but one of the things that uh, occurred to me reading those sections is uh, and you talked about this the last time we spoke 
but was uh, about the spirit. Like you could be depressed, but still have a strong spirit. Like there was a difference between the spiritual despair and like this clinical depression. Yeah. Can you kind of explain that again? Yeah, well, just try when you're feeling really down, like nothing matters and everything's hopeless. Can you reach through that and still be a loving person? And uh, I still deal with that all the time, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that challenge uh, already become nihilistic. Like, uh, you know, when you feel hopeless and nothing looks like it's, you know, and you're, you're down and uh, can you, can you still be a caring person? And uh, that's, that's the challenge. And, uh, to the extent that you can, you're not in despair for a care card, right? To the extent that you can still uh, get through, reach through your pain. And well, the person I like to bring up a lot is Abraham Lincoln. I mean, there was a guy that uh, they had to they had to hide all kinds of implements around the White House all, all his life. He was uh, suicidal, wow. a really depressive person, you know. Uh, and um, uh, and here he was such a loving and strong person at the same time, you know. So we could think of despair as like uh, depression as a mood, a feeling that some of us have to deal with much more than others and uh, that can have all kinds of origins. Uh, but um, despair would be when you give into that depression and kind of define yourself in terms of it and no longer aspire to be for Kierkegaard, a faith, faithful to God, uh, a loving human being. And so the distinction between a spiritual and a psychological disorder was what I was trying to get at there. That was actually a really powerful idea because it kind of, you know, a lot of people who deal with depression or during my own like dark times, like reading this book now, I realized, oh, okay, you could be depressed, but still find meaning in your life or some kind of purpose, or you could be depressed, but still get things done. It doesn't mean that you're defeated. Right. But it's more than getting things done. It's can you still, can you still care about other people? Can you reach out and be a loving person or can you, in Kierkegaard's case, you still trust in God. Do you still think life is good? I mean, so it's it's more than like a lot of people can work through the depression and still they'd be in despair. But can you still hold yourself to a high moral standard and uh, to be a uh, to be a brother and to be a brother or sister to people? You know, that that's really hard. You know, so that when, when depression gets really bad, I, I don't know. I find I could I feel nihilistic, like nothing matters anymore. You know, it's just this place is just a hall of doom. You know, that's all, you know, with uh, occasional nice moments. And uh, I always think of the cops, what are you going to do when they come for you? (laughs) (laughs) With depression being the cops, you know. (laughs) You know, so it's can you reach through it? That's what you got to try to do. I know you speak at length about Kierkegaard. And if you're ever in a social setting where you have to do let's say a quick elevator pitch of sorts, like 30 seconds. How would you explain Kierkegaard to the layman or to somebody who might not be familiar with his work? Well, as I said, I, I oftentimes talk about what's attractive about him, namely this, his recognition of things like anxiety and depression and uh, how important it is to be able to, to deal with those inner obstacles to being a good human being. And uh, his uh, all the emphasis, he says that there's so many... Uh, situations in life where we, we, where we have to make a choice and can't do it on the basis of, you know, calculating reason. So the limits of reason. So, so I, I talk about a couple of, the, of his insights usually. The elevator pitch, come on. <laughs> but it's true. I, I get it. I do, I do get that question. I usually get, now, what would Kierkegaard say? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the fuck he would say. <laughs> Call him up. <laughs> Actually, that leads me to my next question. Uh, it's a good segue, which is, uh, how did you get started in boxing? Oh, because oh, yes, I, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I've been working on taking a sabbatical for boxing right now. So I was, 
I haven't been watching fights or anything because you know I, I lost my job with HBO when they closed down. Uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal is not not covering as much anymore, and uh, and uh, some ambivalence about it. So I thought I was taking a sabbatical from it, but you're bringing me back. Uh, not just that there was a lot of violence in my house, and uh, the idea of vulner- vulnerability, you know, just uh, uh, feeling like you can protect yourself, feeling safe. You know, it's a way to way to feel safe, you know, avoid a feeling of vulnerability, even though it's um, and there's all kinds of people do it in all kinds of different ways. So if you're taking a sabbatical or thinking about it, are you going to take some time off of coaching as well? No, I'm t- I got a high school group I'm going dealing with coming up. No, I, I don't. I, I, I guess I'm taking a sabbatical from professional boxing. <laughs> I guess it's very meaningful to a lot of kids. It really is really good for some kids because not, not just because of the, not the boxing per se, but the close relationship with the coach. Yeah, that's really much, and much more so than in football, where you're there with them every day, and you know, and they they start opening up about their lives. So it's really powerful. It's a it's a way of doing therapy without 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 them knowing it. Sometimes has your style of coaching and training changed over the years, and if so, what's changed and what stayed the same? Yeah, it's gotten much better because I I uh, always all the champions I talk to, I, I pump it for information about uh t- technique stuff. And uh, Angelo Dundee was one of my mentors, and uh, he was helpful. And Ma- Emmanuel Stewart, I was ghostwriting his book for a time. Uh, uh, so I did. A, I studied a lot of, uh, you know, like I'd always ask, uh, uh, I'd ask a fighter, you know, what's your best move, you know, and um, uh, that that really helped me be a better coach. I think, you know, really, I feel comp- really confident in my knowledge of that stuff. <laughs> so. Even the term coach, right, has like a psychological kind yeah. of connotation well, to yeah, it. Right? Yeah, especially now because you get this idea, I'm a life coach. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a whole, you know, it's a whole new field, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, therapy's taken, it's, everything's a form of therapy. But the athlete-coach relationship, there is that kind of – because you know where I see that term coaching a lot now because I just had a kid like literally like a couple weeks ago. So, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank uh, that's, you. That's a, yeah, what's his, his or her, his or her – Boy, girl? It's a it's a boy. Ah, oh, what's your name? Gil. Oh man, that's beautiful. I'm so I'm so so happy for you. Thank you. You got so many good things ahead of you. And so <laughs> many worries. No, that's beautiful. Oh man, the the worries. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of. Yeah, I'm panicking at everything. It's like having your heart outside yourself. Oh yeah, that's actually the best uh, definition of how I feel at all times, though. Yeah, and I bet you feel a lot more energy too. You get some energy from it too. Yeah, normally if I don't sleep. I'd be dead, but yeah. actually now, even though I'm not sleeping much, but I'm still pretty good. So yeah, yeah, that's how. Oh, congratulations! Yeah. But what I was going to say is, even in the parenting books, yeah. they use the term coaching, and they even explain why because they're saying there is a psychological aspect. You kind of have to be kind of uh, you know, have this psychological. You can't be just like telling them what to do or what not to do. Right. Uh, they're talking about you also have to think about their development of their brain, how they think and, and those aspects. And, and that reminded me of like, oh yeah, that is like unconsciously what I think of in a sports coach as well. Like that they're going to develop my mind as well, or they know the right triggers or the things to say to me specifically to get me to do the right things or the right techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And also to you, you, maybe you've seen this already, uh, but uh, personality comes out pretty quickly too. So really taking a, getting a real clear idea of, trying to develop an idea of what kind of personality you're dealing with because that comes out early. I had, you know, two boys and their personalities were quite different, even though they're, you know, grew up only 18 months apart. And, uh, 
Um, so take take a notice of that. It's really really important, you know. But um, how how much of that is a, a factor in whether you're coaching football or boxing, where you know they have maybe f- certain physical attributes, but their personality like wants to do other stuff. Do fighters tend to want to do more things based on their personality rather than their physical attributes? No, the thing with boxing is, is, you know, people drop in and out of it. That's why I get sick of it, you know, because they'll, uh, I want to be a boxer. I want to be a boxer. Like, and you're training them there for a couple of months or so. And then the next thing you know, uh, uh, I want to do something. You know, they get punched in the nose or they lose their first fight and it's goodbye. And they come back again, you know. So all this kind of approach avoidance stuff with, uh, with, with boxing is because they want, they want the red badge of courage, you know. And uh, uh, they get through boxing, but so it's a little boxing is more frustrating like that. On the other hand, in football, it's much more uh, corporate type sport. So I, I got to be careful what I say, given if the, there's a head coach there, and you know I can't contradict what he's saying. Or so it's much more corporate mentality. One of the, one of the things I did, I, I, I was uh, you know because I was coach at Virginia Military Institute, and I had a mentor named Gordy Hawkins who was uh, in the Marines and. He was one of the, one of the great lessons I got from him was really being hard. I'm expecting a lot from people, pushing them, you know, uh, in a loving way, you know. So I, I, you know, so when people have your trust, you can really, you can. Really, but that 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 the loving thing to do in a lot of cases, you got to tell people hard truths. You got to be straight with them, no, you know, no bullshit, you know. And I, I've worked at that, and uh, uh, and that was hard for me. That was hard for me, you know, to to. Uh, they call people to task sometimes, the boxers to task. You know, you haven't been in here, you're not ready. You know, that kind of stuff where you don't want to do this, you know. I'm sure they're not ready to hear it sometimes either. No, no, like I had a guy, <laughs> I had a guy last year who, uh, who uh, a pretty wealthy kid, who, you know, his big dream was to have a, a kid from San Francisco. And um, he, uh, he, you know, was, I said, well, you know, I always tell kids if, uh, you son of a bitch, you got me back on the boxing again. <laughs> You did it again. You guys are triggered. Oh, man. Anyhow. That Jedi mind trick. <laughs> that's, gosh. You, should... you know, it's like that movie Inception. You yeah, know, you're, you're, right. Inception. you're right. <laughs> oh, man. Any, anyhow, you know, like, uh, so I, I always tell these kids, if you if you uh, you train consistently for a couple of months and you go up to the cities, where you, you see a bout and you go to spar up in the cities, I'll get you a, I'll get you a bout, you know. And this kid did everything he was you know supposed to do, but it was – Kind of like an adventure for him. So he goes up, we go up to Duluth, and, you know, and um, it's a long ride for three one minute rounds. And uh, was sort of fight he, he should have, he should have won pretty handily. And he, and he lost. And he comes out and he goes, Oh man, that was fun. I said, Oh man, I almost freaking killed the kid. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> you know, because boxing, that's not the kind of added. I, I just, and it was it. It was a cultural experience. Most, I never had a boxer with that kind of, Ooh, that was fun. Wee! You know, so it was just part of his resume. And, uh, I guess that's cool, but it wasn't in uh, one nuts. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to ask because it seems like fitness and boxing has kind of really gotten married. So a lot of yeah, people yeah. might be interested in it for like exercise yep. or for fun or like a life experience. Yeah. Uh, have you seen that change? Over yeah, I can't time? stand you- it. Yeah, I, won't, I tell people <laughs> I don't do fitness boxing because a lot of the fitness boxing breaks down your technique. If you hit a bag for like six minutes, you're going to drop your hands. You're not going to get the proper mm. technique. So I really draw the distinction between the fitness, which is okay. If you're doing fitness boxing, that's cool. But its uh, I don't think it's its generally good for people who want to compete. And you really only get, you know, uh, something emotional out of boxing if you at least get the level where you spar. You know, if you spar, you know, having a bounce really good, having a bounce great, you know, sense of self-affirmation, which a lot of people are looking for. But you don't get that unless you spar. You know, a lot of places like I know, 
title boxing around here. They don't they don't allow sparring in there. You know, they have the huge boxing gym, but there's no sparring there. Wow. So which is again okay, but I I don't do it. I don't I don't like it. I think it breaks down technique and doesn't have to do a lot of emotional good. So any more questions about philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What what drives you crazy about philosophy? <laughs> As a philosopher and a teacher, is there anything about the culture or other professors? Like, is there anything that, because I know boxing drives you crazy. Yeah. Does philosophy never drive you crazy? Oh, yeah. No, it definitely does. It gets, when it's too academic, too remote from like people treat it like it's a bunch of intellectual puzzles. I and mean, people, philosophers are really, uh, you have to sacrifice a lot to become an academic philosopher. A lot of these people are super smart. And, uh, there's so few jobs out there and getting a PhD can take six to 10, you know, six, eight years. And where I went to University of Chicago, 10 years usually. And um, so they're really uh, very much engaged in these kind of intellectual puzzles. Of, you know, um, and uh, it's kind of insular in the sense of, you know, only a few people can follow what's going on. So, and I, again, I think I'm much, I have a much more practical approach to what I, I came to philosophy in need of their help, you know, and, uh, so, but there, there's as much more. Sometimes the abstractions, the the jargon, uh, I, I don't appreciate. You know? uh, so that's 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 something that gets the way of me. And what do you think about in? Uh, we talked about you know fitness and boxing getting married. You're gonna do it again. You're gonna. No, do no, 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 no. I'm gonna go back to philosophy. So what about this marriage I'm seeing these days? Or actually, I think it started you know a while back, but much more mainstream now. Marriage of self help and philosophy. I see. I joined these philosophy message boards, and then. Half the stuff they're sharing is just from self-help people is that right? or academics. Yeah. Or academics like writing these rule books about self-help. And it's like Yeah, that, that's not what saying. I, I think um that that philosophies that that people uh, who've given up on God, who put God to bed, have uh, still want some idea, something deeper. And so they're turning to philosophers like priests now. And I, I have uh I think in order to be a sage or whatever, you need to uh, demonstrate it in your life, you know. So uh, but there is this need for something deeper. They don't just want to say, oh, there's no God. It's all, you know, it's, you know they still want, they want to have the spirit, but without a God or, you know, that's why people go to yoga, mindfulness, anything. I want, they want religion without any sense of authority. Yeah, but philosophers are, are definitely starting to fill in a niche here, especially Stoic philosophy, Stoicism. So uh, that that's a, that, that is an accessible philosophy. Those are the most popular uh, self-help type philosophy books, but, but you're right. You're absolutely right. I think that's going on a lot. And, uh, and my book is, you know, it's listed on the self-help uh, shelf, apparently. So Yeah, it sells better there. That's, I, that's, that's probably what they're, that, that's, I'm sure that's what they're thinking. I think it's also the title itself when he says Guy 2. Yeah, I It know. seems more appropriate than self-help. Yeah, I fought with that title, man. I wanted something like, uh, uh, there are no happy endings. They stay next to that one right away. Uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, with nonfiction books now, the titles are are like have to be the thesis or like yeah. this long description or a search term. Like if you're Googling something, the title is what will come up. Yeah, right. Or they, uh, that book that was a subtle order of not giving a fuck, stuff like that. Yeah. They want that shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. From, yeah, that's what I should have. Yeah. Yeah. I, did, I didn't realize the marketing aspect that goes with writing a book for – a, tra a trade publication. So uh, I had a lot of trouble with that. Luckily, my son's an editor and he, he, he helped me, gave me some coaching on that. <laughs> Speaking of sons and youth, I have a younger sister and a younger brother um, in their 20s and 17s, respectively, or teens, respectively. And it's hard to introduce them to philosophy because they're from an age where they're used to getting things 
on the go as yeah. well as not thinking deeply. Memes, <laughs> memes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. What would be a good way to introduce them to philosophy subtly and early? Yeah, I think uh, Plato, uh, the, the, Plato's dialogues, the, the Euthyphro, the um, the Apology, but especially the Crito. So the Crito is only a few pages, and it's really deep because uh, he's uh, uh, Socrates has been condemned to death, and Crito comes and tries to talk him into to escaping because the Athenians really would like him to take off. And uh, it's a beautiful dialogue. It's only a few pages. You know, but this uh, thinking of thinking of philosophy is this art of thinking thinking slowly. You know, and uh, that's how I try to uh, approach it. And it's a different it's a different way of thinking. So I also I mentioned to him, hey, okay, you know, it's a it's a there's a spiritual dimension here where you learn to think slowly about something. But uh, you're right; they they just just tell me what it's about. It's 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 hard to. You know, I get pretty I get pretty. Uh, I start yelling in class and stuff, man. Like, <laughs> I do. I you do, like, yeah. you start. I can't see it. You I, yelling. I, 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 <laughs> I go off right in the class, man. I go like you guys are, like hear this thing like Michelangelo, and you're like, oh yes, okay, well. I know when kid when I, they don't do the reading, um, uh, when I'll ask them like a really straightforward like, a question, and they don't, and they haven't done the reading, I tell them, okay, now you have to say, I don't know this now, but I'll study it before the quiz, you know, like that. You know, has college like academic writing gotten worse over the years? Have you noticed that at all, or? Is- Still pretty. Oh good, yeah, or? yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's assignments are shorter and shorter. You know, uh, much more practical bent um, you know, because of the cost of colleges. I think you know. So yeah, I would definitely say attention spans have diminished. Are they using emojis in their essays now? No, or? that's next. <laughs> pretty next, they'll be just. No, when I was a, so, for example, when I was at Columbia in my first professor as a first year student. Um, uh, you were asked to write twenty-five page papers. If you do that today, they they, they kick you out. Oh yeah, they yeah. sue you. That's right, they sue you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's they, uh, It's a different. It's a different culture. But I love them. I love students. I love them. I really, really care about them a lot, and I really feel privileged to be able to to intersect with their lives. You know, so it's really, it's really cool. It's a cool thing. Actually, your book has been one of the easiest ones for me to recommend because, you know, maybe they'll just read like a couple pages for free or whatever. And it's like, okay, this one is, seems accessible to me. And then they'll, yeah. you know. And if, and if you put the word out there, please tell people they can feel. I have a lot of people email me with questions, some rather long, or uh, so I'm really open to answering emails. Oh, wow. Okay. It might take a few days. Sometimes it takes a few days, but I, I, will, uh, I will answer and I'm happy to be in conversation with people about it. Actually, before we wrap this up, let me ask one final question. All and right, then you okay. give us all right. What's it about? Who's your favorite boxer of all time? Uh, Joe Frazier, man. Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier. The smoke. Smoke and Joe Frazier. Why is that? Uh, he had such yeah. Well, his 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 relentless. I can't believe you did it again. This the last one. No, but the last question. The last question should have been like, okay, aside from Kid Guard. Who do you, who, never mind. Okay. Who'd win in a fight? Uh, I know, Joe was, Joe could dig deeps. And so you watched, well, uh, March 8th was the anniversary of the first Ali Frazier fight. And um, it was weird because, uh, again, met, you know, Angela was my mentor. And, um, but I just looked up to Joe and I tried to fight it, box his style. And uh, it was, yeah, not everybody can do that. He was just so, so determined and um, such a beautiful left hook, a small guy. And, and a certain dignity about him. I mean, it was real clear, it's like real honesty and uh, and stuff. And there's a book coming out by Mark Cram Jr. Uh, called "Smoke and Joe Frazier." It's coming out, and uh, uh, it's coming out from uh, Harper, I think. Uh, Harper, I think. And uh, it's a it's a new bio. So 
pretty amazing life. You know, really overcame a lot of stuff and loved them. Loved them. It was such an inspiration. So to tie it back to philosophy, oh, what would oh, you here think? We go, here we go. So but you guys know this. What I call okay, hi, okay, let's see you. Okay, tie it back. To, okay, let's see you do it. So <laughs> since you said your favorite boxer of all time, pound for pound, is Joe Frazier, what would you think his philosophy on life is? Uh, to be honest, to give everything, to give completely, man. Like, but that's that's the thing. Uh, uh, and I think I told you this story last time, but but when your uh, technology cracked <laughs> up or whatever. But uh, one time I gave a talk at a law school, and I was about, uh, and I decided I would talk about commitment. And so I showed the for a uh, couple of rounds from the uh, Thriller in Manoa as examples of you know Frazier before the fight said he's ready to die. Wow, he was ready to die. You know, I mean, he was so angry at Ali. He was a lot of rage in that fight, and so I'm playing. I'm playing this, and it's bringing tears. It's bringing tears to my eyes, which is kind of I don't know, crazy. And I turn around, and the whole the whole audience thinks I'm out of my fucking mind. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I, I I knew it was downhill from there, man. Because was, you know, I'm I'm playing this incredible. Yeah, if you haven't watched it, you just got to watch it sometimes. I mean, you know, Ali said it was the closest to death he ever came, and um. Joe Joe was kind of blind in one eye to begin with, and when his, uh, the fight was stopped in the fourteenth round by after the fourteenth round by Eddie Futch, and just amazing level of complete commitment. So what it is to so that 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 was certainly part of his philosophy. I think you know, yeah, you know, actually, no lie, uh, this isn't a joke, but my my love for philosophy and fighting is one overlap is that both seems very revealing. Like it reveals so much about the soul and the spirit. And that's what I love. But you should also see it as something that develops the soul and the spirit. You know, it doesn't just, yeah, like people when they uh, first start boxing, they're afraid. That doesn't mean they're cowardly. That takes a while. You, you learn how to deal with certain uh, feelings. Or again, in philosophy, you learn how to think. You, you Like Plato said, you know, and this is something, one of the things I find why I do a lot of close readings in classes because the real, a lot of time, the real soul of uh, these great authors is in between the lines, you know, not like in the summaries you get. And somewhat Plato says that the the, 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 the um, greatest evil in life is um, is laziness, it's like not wanting to think things through, you know, the laziness about thinking things through, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, a lack of intelligence or, you know, uh, that people just don't want to, you know, after five minutes ago, so that's enough. You know, I don't need to think about justice anymore. Yeah. You know, and so on the one hand, you're right. It does reveal something. It, it can tell you where you are and it can help you get to another place if you're on. So, so being honest with yourself is, I think, is so that's one of the things I found most important in, in Kierkegaard and Joe Frazier. So Plato, Crito. Crito, yeah. C-R-I-T-O. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With a, but but introduce him. If you're going to read, read that, I would... Inter- give the introduction say okay socrates has been through this trial and okay yeah i'll add that suggestion in the show notes for people to find out okay give give us your plug <laughs> Where, what's your twitter what's okay, your plug? Twitter, what's everything twitter's just at gordon marino at gordon capital g capital m and my uh email address is uh, marino at stolaf s-t-o-l-a-f dot e-d-u and if they like the book, please uh, put a review on Amazon. If you don't like it, too, I guess you do, do that, too. <laughs> but here's my plug, man. That was a... Uh, good, good. I'll put all the, the links in the show notes. Yeah. And next time, you'll be calling me tomorrow to tell me that the uh, technology didn't work. we got to do this again, right? <laughs> no, then you'll never hear from us again. We'll be, we'll be so embarrassed. <laughs> you'll never hear from us again. You guys are- 
<laughs> uh, uh, thanks, thanks for your interest, guys, and stay, stay in touch, man. And uh, congratulations on Gil, and uh, God, God bless, and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, maybe I'll email you about some parenting tips. Anytime, man. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate uh, getting connected with you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Take care. All right, thank you. Take care.